Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today remembers tiny details about some of the doctors who helped him at the most difficult points in his life. It is those details that cemented his relationship with those doctors and led to excellent outcomes. The illnesses he describes are some of the most challenging diagnoses in medicine. My guest on the podcast today is Daniel G. Garza. You're very, very welcome to the show, Daniel. I'm so pleased to be speaking with you today. And I want to start with your experience as you recounted it in previous conversations about getting a diagnosis and where to from there. So I'll let you talk about where all of this started for you. Sure. Hi. Well, first, thank you so much for the invitation. I, I, I'm usually the interviewer, not the interviewee. So this is unusual for me. But my journey in HIV AIDS started, it actually started back in 1990. I first got tested in 1990 because of a coworker who was diagnosed with TB and we all had to go get tested in the office. And once there, this is 1990, Dallas, Texas. There was information on HIV and AIDS. People, it was out there just in the gay community. We weren't really talking about it. So I was very uneducated. And, and, and I say this now, 20 years later, I think I was selectively naive. I didn't want to know too much about it because I felt like if you knew too much, then you were connected to it. And then being 20 years old, I didn't want to be associated with HIV and AIDS. So I went and got tested for TB. And while they did the interview, the intake, the nurse suggested I get an HIV test. So they drew some blood. And for people who are not familiar with tests then, they would draw the blood, send it off for two weeks, and then you would get your results. So two weeks later, they called me back to come back to the clinic. And I went. The nurse asked me to wait in an office. She gave me some pamphlets. I got scared and I left. So I didn't want to know my results. And I figured if I didn't know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. This wasn't going to happen to me. It was very typical in my family. If you don't talk about it, it does, it, it didn't happen. And I think it's very traditional Latino families that as long as you don't bring it to the table, it, it, it doesn't happen. So 10 years later, after a lot of drugs and alcohol, and not being careful with myself, I, I ended up getting very sick. I was 110 pounds, 108 T cells. I had a stomach infection, pneumonia, TB. I had lost all kinds of muscle. I couldn't hardly walk. And the job where I was, my manager, owner, pulled me aside and she says, you're not doing well. You need to go home and take care of yourself, and, and then come back to work. And I tell people now in my presentations, our mind is so powerful that I I didn't know I was sick. I mean, I guess I knew, but I thought it was the drugs and the alcohol and not sleeping that I lost all this weight. But I, in my head, I thought, I've lost all this weight. I'm a 29-size pants. I look really hot. I'm, I'm, I'm skinny. I'm, I'm attractive. I'm great. But I never... Like I could never see myself in a mirror for myself. I saw what I wanted to see. And my mind carried me until somebody stopped me and said, you're sick, that my body gave out on me. Like my mind finally, like they popped the bubble of, of delusion. So I ended up in the hospital for three weeks. 
during those three weeks, my parents, who were in, in, in Mexico at the time, and I lived in Houston, came up to see me. They had not seen me in a couple of years, and they couldn't recognize me. And my heart broke because it was a, the second time in my life, I was 30 years old then, almost 30, that I saw my, my father cry because they thought I was dying. So when the doctor came into the clinic, into my room, to give me my diagnosis, finally, he asked my parents and my sister to leave the room. And I said, no, you know, let, let them stay. And he said, you have AIDS. My dad didn't quite understand what was going on. My sister knew because she's bilingual. My mom had no clue whatsoever until we had to explain to them what it was. And they were both pretty shocked. It, it wasn't easy. Now, here's again how the brain is so powerful. Uh, the doctor said, do you have any questions? And I said, yes. Will my hair grow back? Because I lost some of my hair. And the doctor looked very like, interestingly at me. And he's, he's like, uh, well, yes, it'll grow back. But do you, did you hear what I said? I said, yes. Can I walk out of here? He's like, well, yes, we're going to keep you for a while. But yes, you can definitely walk out of here. I said, okay, well, then I'm fine. He's like, but do you realize you have AIDS? I said, yes, but there's medications, right? He's like, yes. And my hair's growing back. Yes. And I'm going to walk out. He's like, sure. I'm like, okay, I'm fine. And the doctor kept saying, you have AIDS. I said, look, all I need to know is there's medications, my hair's growing back, and I can walk out. And I, I laugh at it now, but I think it, it set the tone for who I was going to be as an advocate. I don't consider myself a victim. I, from the beginning, I was not going to be a victim to the sickness. I was going to find a way to use it for me. And I did. And 20 years later, HIV positive, I've made a career out of being positive. That's a lovely, lovely story, Daniel. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself in that story. And what occurred to me is what patients often tell us, that the question isn't, have you got AIDS and what does that mean to the, from a medical perspective? It is, you've got this diagnosis, but what matters to you is your hair is going to grow back, you're going to walk out of here and there is a treatment, right? So you pivoted, you saw it in another way. You saw it as what are my options? What are the options that matter to me? And this is something that we don't often acknowledge when it comes to healthcare. We don't often acknowledge what matters to this person here. It's not the diagnosis. It's what's going to happen post that diagnosis. Was that right? Correct. For instance, I came out when I was 17. I, my family found out that I was gay. So I, I, I came out. And from that moment, I was like, okay, so there's a saying in Spanish that says, si lo sabe Dios, que lo sepa el mundo. If God knows, let the world know. And from the moment I came out, I was like, well, my parents know, God knows. Like, who, who am I hiding from now? Like, who, do, who cares? And I, I took that as a positive thing in my life. Okay, so I'm out. What am I going to do now? And the same thing happened with, with AIDS. Is like, my parents know, God knows. Let's move forward. Like, there's, there's nothing to hide. So let me, let me figure out how to use this to my advantage. And the same thing happened when I was diagnosed with anal cancer. I was diagnosed on a Tuesday. And by the next week, I'd already made a, a poster to put on social media about it. And I, I recorded 30 days in of my treatment when I was clean and sober. I, I talked very openly about my recovery. I was an alcoholic. I did drugs and alcohol 16 and, and 20 years alcohol and. I don't hide it. I, I, that was me. It's made me who I am now. Same thing with the ostomy bag. I don't, I don't necessarily flaunt myself on the streets showing my bag, but 
I don't hide the fact that I have one. So every step of my life has always been about, it's not good news. It's not bad news. It's just the fact. The fact was I had AIDS. Now, what are we going to do with it? And I, I can tell you, honestly, it's been very lucrative. It's given me the career that I have now. I mean, it, it's gotten me here to talk to you. So, Well, the honor is ours, believe me. I'm thinking now back to 1990, Dallas, Texas, when you're sitting in that clinic room and the nurse comes and hands you all these pamphlets and walks out the room and you're so freaked out that you, you left. That experience is not uncommon these days for patients in other situations. So whether that's a cancer diagnosis or heart disease or whatever happens to be, how could we make that experience different for people? First, I tell this when I'm very fortunate to do presentations at colleges and universities for future health service providers, whether doctors, therapists, nurses. And one of my things always, it's always a joke, but I do mean it serious. Don't leave your patient with pamphlets. Don't do it. Don't, don't, don't say read the, this and I'll be right back because we probably are not going to read it. Most people are not in a place where you want to read. I would have appreciated had the nurse sat there and explained to me, like, look, there, this is what can happen. Here's the fact. Let's put the feelings and emotions aside. Here is the fact. The fact is that your test results came back possible positive and we want to run some more tests. So I, I need you to hold on a second because this is to, this is to help you. And if we tackle this now, we can help you better versus, Hey, I'll be right back. I, I walked out. That was my, that was my exit. That was my opportunity. That was her saying pretty much. If you leave right now, we, we're breaking up. If you stay, we're going to be in a relationship. And she gave me a chance to break up with her because HIV AIDS, it's a, it's a relationship. It's a long term relationship. There's no breaking up. Once you're in, you're in for life. It's like an arranged marriage that's never going to go away. And she gave me the opportunity to walk away from it. And it, it haunted me for 10 years. So now when I've had the chance to be a peer counselor and sit with people when they're getting uh, tested, I make sure that I have everything I need so that I don't walk away from them. Because there's so many feelings and emotions and thoughts. And, 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 and the, some of the facts that may not be complete are, I'm going to die. I'm going to be disowned. I have no more friends. My future is over. I'm never going to find love because we all feel that way. Even with cancer, I felt that way. I, I feel like the greatest thing you can do as a health provider is to be there from the start and say, hey, here's what's going on. I'm not leaving your side until you are, you've, you've made some kind of peace with this. And then I'll let you go home. Otherwise, you go home and even, I sound very positive, but even at 20 years into it, I, there are days when my, my thought goes to, am I dying? Like, for instance, during the lockdown, COVID came in and I was like, what does that mean for somebody like me? What, can I go outside? Can I go anywhere? What can happen? So, but going back to the original, yeah, if, if, please don't leave your patients alone. There's so much going on and they need us to help them shift through the yes, no, and maybe questions. I so love that characterization of you're in a relationship and this is the first step. And when you're giving somebody an exit, you're saying, walk out of here, bury your head in the sand. It, it's not going to happen. And this is where it all ends. It doesn't end there. Of course, it doesn't end because 
people end up really quite ill in the long term because it's, it isn't going away. You really need them to come to terms with what has happened and see that it isn't the end of the world. It's just another world that they're entering. Another door is opening and they need to see their way past that, that sign on the door into something that might turn out to be quite positive. Yeah. There is this, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those locked rooms games where you go in, they lock you in and you have to find the codes and you have to get out. There's only so much time. I feel like there's only so much time in the beginning when somebody's newly diagnosed. And, and again, I say this for HIV AIDS. I say this for somebody who is alcoholic or drug addict and, and they're doing an intervention, somebody with cancer, mental health. You've got that window of opportunity when you're, when you're newly diagnosed to lay the foundation of what their treatment and their outcome is going to be like. If we, if we leave people to their own devices without the proper answers, they'll create, we'll create our own answers to questions that aren't even valid. And that's going to set the tone for their treatment forever. And then you, we wonder why some people five years, six years down are depressed and anxious and agoraphobic or, or any other issue. And it's, I, I do believe that it's that foundation with that first person that gave them their diagnosis. Agreed. I think that you've got to get it right. We call it a set play. You know, the set play is that you're going to have to give somebody some challenging news. You don't enter that as if it doesn't matter, as if it, it'll all just unfold as it will. You need to have a plan, don't you? Exactly as you say. You don't say, here's a pamphlet and walk out, hoping that that's the answer. The answer is to engage that person. And you've got to work out what that engagement looks like. You must have seen this done well in the past few years. Can you describe a situation where you saw a health professional break this kind of news or engage somebody in a very positive way? Oh, definitely. It was me with my colorectal doctor. So I was diagnosed. I know this is seen, heard internationally, but for those of you in the States, Cinco de Mayo, which is a very Latin kind of holiday here in the States. Anyway. I was diagnosed on Cinco de Mayo and we were on our way to a party with nachos and tacos and stuff. And I was still having problems with colon cancer. I didn't know it was, I mean, anal cancer. I didn't know it was that at the moment, but my doctor, I called my doctor and said, Hey, I'm having issues. He said, come into the clinic right now. We're going to, we're going to talk. So I walked in and Dr. Bobby Rad here in Orange County, California, sat me down and said, cause he knew the way that I, I functioned. He said, okay, let me, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You have anal cancer. And I said, okay, what do, what do we do? And he's like, well, we're, I recommend chemo and radiation right away. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And of course, we're human. And no matter how prepared you kind of are, I started crying. And he got up from his chair, put his hand on my shoulder and said, look at me. And of course, I'm crying and I'm looking down because I don't want to see him. I don't want anybody to see me cry. He's like, look at me. And and he said it a third time, but this time it was not really a question. It was more like a demand. He said, look at me. And once I looked him in the eye, he had me by the shoulder and he said, we got this. And that made all the difference in the world. When he said, we, I knew that he was on my side. I'm getting chills right now as I, whew, I'm getting emotional as we talk about it. It was the first time that a doctor ever gave me a diagnosis of anything and said, we got this. We're in this together. We're going to start. We're going to finish. We're going to see it through. We got this. 
And I was, I looked at him and I stopped crying. I said, if you're in this with me, I'm in it with you. Let's go. And that, and well, yes, this is all I needed. That was all I needed. Anything, every challenge that I went through, every step back, every breakdown, because I went to 123 pounds during treatment. But every step of the way, I knew that he had an eye on everything that was happening and he was going to take care of me. That no matter, no matter how wrong I thought things were going, I knew that he was watching. Like he was at the control panel, making sure that all the gauges were correct, all the fluids were right. So all I had to do was just go on for the ride. And I mean, God bless. Here I am five years later, cancer free. There were some complications, which is why I have the ostomy bag, but I'm 160 something pounds and healthy and I'm talking about it. And, and again, I'm here, I'm here talking to you about it. So that, that's not, but that's not just me. It's not just me. It's the doctor that was there with me. I, we were co-pilots. We were, we were sharing the drive in that journey. And that made a huge difference in the way that I attacked my treatment. And we're so pleased that it worked out that way. It's uh, fantastic. And so, so much of a, a privilege for us to now be able to share all of that uh, with you and with the world. Now, the thing I'm intrigued about is this doctor, because you're describing someone very special. You're describing somebody who had an enormous capacity to communicate with people. And that's common, but it's not that common, a trait in medicine. What else about this doctor did you notice? There must have been many other things, because it's not just his ability to communicate. There must have been many other little things that you noticed, things that are not something that is mandated by a system, but is that he brought to his job. I think that the very first thing that I noticed on our very first visit was he read me like he read it. It's like kind of like a, like a, like a comedian or a performer coming into in front of the audience. He read the audience. He knew what kind of patient I was. I'm very sarcastic. I make light of things because that's how I get through things. If I take it too, too serious, then it makes me a victim of the situation versus me controlling the situation. So he understood that I made a lot of butt jokes. Because we were going there, we were there, we were there for colorectal problems. So I made a lot of butt jokes. I made a lot of poop jokes and he just read me and he, he's like, okay, that's the angle we're going to take. So that was the first thing I noticed. And I think it, it, we do test medical providers. We want to see if you can handle, or I do. I want to see if they can handle my way of joking. And he did. So that was like, he, he understood that this was not going to be an ultra serious conversation, but he also knew that I was not about my feelings and my emotions because they had nothing to do really with, with the diagnosis. I wanted the facts. Tell me the facts. Don't guess. Don't estimate. What are we looking at here? Best based on your experience. What, what does your experience say will happen here? And he was very honest. And as things were shifting, he, he would tell me, Hey, this worked. This didn't work. We're shifting this treatment or we're shifting it. Very honest. Very upfront. There was no sugarcoating things for me. I don't like sugarcoat stuff. Tell me the truth. And one of the other things that he did that I really, really loved was that he was stern when he had to be. He, it, yes, there were a lot of things, obviously, as the patient that were left to my decision. Like I, I decided when we wanted, when we had the ostomy surgery, because I didn't want to do it over the holidays. I wanted to wait. Um, cause I had my surgery on April, April 1st of 2016. 
So he, he was like, do you want to wait? Yes. But he, he was very honest with like, you're going to have to have it done. It's going to need to happen. Otherwise, you'll be in diapers for the rest of your life. And it's like, do you really want that? Well, no. Then you're going to have to have the surgery when you decide, but you're going to have it. It's, it that's, that's on the table. And no matter how much I like, eh, yeah, yeah, I don't want to. He was like, this is going to happen. So you decide when. And I think at, at, at like anybody at first, I was kind of like, how dare you? How dare you talk? I'm the patient. And, and then I would sit back and go, but he's my doctor and I, I put my trust in him. But it, it was a combination of all those little things. It's like he understood where I came from. He didn't try to change me as a patient. He adjusted the way he treated me to make me feel more comfortable. He laid down the facts. As I know some people like the sugar coating. Some people like to be treated with, with like white gloves. I don't. Let, let's talk, let, let's talk the dirty stuff here. But he really got to know me. And in fact, I got to interview him for my podcast and we got to talk. It, 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 he's, you're right. It, it's, it's not uncommon, but it's not regular. We don't have a lot of doctors out there. So I, I think if I could end this part with the, with the recommendation or a suggestion is if you're out there and you're like, why am I not connecting to my patients? I would say, because you're the one offering the service. We're buying your service. So you, you, you can't adjust it. It doesn't make you less of a doctor. It doesn't make you less productive or get the results. It's probably going to give you even more and better results if you just modify. It's the difference between ordering a hamburger and a cheeseburger. It's just the cheese, but it, but it's going to taste so much better to your patient. So just adjust those things. I love that analogy, the cheese. So what else about the cheese? You certainly said that he was firm, he was fair, he was compassionate all of those things that you described. Were there other things about him that were easy to emulate, which we take for granted? He Was he on time? Was his work proficient? Did he offer a, a service where you could count on things happening at certain times? I will definitely say that, and this is going to sound weird to people, but because of all the years that I've been receiving medical services, I've been sick since I was a baby. I came out of the womb already with the, with the uh, underformed stomach. So I was already in trouble from the time I was born. So this is going on almost 50 years of being in and out of doctor's offices. He was not on time. And I appreciated that because I knew that the patient before me, or the, and I'm an early person. I, I like the first appointment of the day. I want to be there early so I can get out early. But on days when I couldn't have the first one and he was running late, I knew that he was late because he was giving the patient before me the respect that he deserved or she deserved to get all the answers that they needed before letting them go. So I knew that when it was my turn, I wouldn't get the 15, 20 minutes that that's allowed. I could get 30 minutes of his time without feeling guilty about it because I, I know that the patient after me understood that I, that we were running late because he was giving me the time that I needed. Even if I needed something explained to me five times, he would do it. So I respect a doctor that's not on time because that's telling me that somebody before me is getting everything that they need to be comfortable with that appointment. And that's ultimately what we need. He did always smell good. I will give him this. Dr. Rad 
always smelled good. I don't know what cologne he used, but he smelled nice. And that really, that, that told me that like, for instance, for surgeries or colonoscopies, he would walk in and he would have his hair combed. He would smell nice. And that told me that he, it, it, it was, it was the presentation. I wanted him to look good, be refreshed, be ready to take care of me. I don't like, I, I, as a, as a matter of just fact, I don't like people who have low effort. I, I don't like give it just a little more percentage. Just give it a little more. So if Dr. Rad ever hears this, just know that you're looking good, you smelling good, and you being late did not go unnoticed. And I totally appreciated that. Keep going. What was his room like? Where did he look? Did you sit uh, behind a desk, etc.? He he didn't have a desk when we got when when I went to his clinic here at the at the office where he had it's a small spaces. And, so no, he had a, a little desk where the laptop sat or the computer sat, and that was all his desk. And he had a, one of those little roll around stools, so he was able to move around. Everything was always well lit. That one of the things about that the superior, it, it's whole clinics down here, superior, but always very well lit, always smelled clean, which I always appreciated. He moved around. He was always very gracious. I have several pictures with him that we took over the couple of years that we were working together. Like I said, when I asked him to be a, a, on my podcast, he was very, he was ready to go and comments and, and, and explain things. He didn't use the big fancy $20 words that you buy in medical school. I know they're wonderful and I know you guys love to use them, but I don't subscribe to those words. So don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I, I do now that I'm an advocate older and like you start, you, you start recognizing a lot of the common words like in HIV and, and stuff like that. But I think for regular folks who are not advocates or activists, but just regular normal patients, save the $20 words for for fancy places. We don't need those. And he was very specific about the sphincter and this is where the cancer is and it's a tumor. And we talked, because you had to talk about anal sex because uh, as a gay man, that was part of the, we talked about anal sex and HPV and HIV and how it all combined. And But he made it very simple for me to be able to explain to other people what was going on. And I appreciated that because as a cancer survivor, people will ask you, Especially when you're open about it, like I am, there was always going to be another gentleman out there who thinks he has anal cancer or colorectal cancer, and they're curious, and they'll they'll approach me either at a well, they used to at a function, or they'll email me or message me, and they want to know. But if I give them the twenty dollars words, they're not going to know. So me knowing in simple terms what happened allows me to explain to other people, which then educates them. And then they can in turn educate other people. And now they become advocates. And so I think that was one of the cool things that he did was he kept it very simple so that I could learn and then I could teach. And and then and then we continue that the domino effect. So yeah, don't use too big words. Like they don't we don't we don't need them for the conversation. It is said that we doctors get the patients we deserve and your doctor's done exceptionally well in somebody in having the honor of working with somebody like you. Daniel, where can people find you? Where can we connect with the work that you're doing and the message that you're relaying? Sure. 
the best place to connect with me would be my email address, which is Daniel G Garza, uh, all one word at hotmail.com. It's very easy. So just my name, Daniel G Garza. And then I, I'm still a big fan of Facebook. So you can find me on Facebook under the same name, Daniel G Garza. And then I have my HIV page, which is called HIV Positive Life on Facebook, where you can go and connect and you can find everything on, everything on there. And I started that page as a way to connect with other people around the world. I, I get messages from people out of Africa and India and the Philippines and Brazil and people who want information on HIV and AIDS. So that's also a great place. But definitely email. I, I always check my emails. So if you email me there with any questions or I will reply. Daniel G. Garza, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. We wish you all the very best and let's have another conversation very soon. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.